Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of um, Philippians chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. When is good enough good enough? When is good enough good enough? How good do you have to be to find favor with God, to find peace for your own conscience, and have a hope that when you die, you will make it to heaven? This question haunts us all. It even finds its way into uh, the cartoons of Calvin and Hobbes. The particular cartoon I have in mind has the two friends hurtling down a snowy slope, and they're talking. They're always talking, Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes replies, you're worried. You haven't been good enough. Calvin replies, that's just the question. It's it's all so relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. That's good, right? I haven't started any, any wars. That's good, right? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobbes says, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. And that question worries us all, or it should do. How many vices do you have to avoid? How many virtues do you have to practice to be good enough? The unspoken assumption across America this morning is, as one man put it, a good God, if He exists, rewards nice people who do their best. A good God, if He exists, rewards nice people who do their best. Now, when you come to die, it's a case of justification by death. As long as you're a nice person, did your best, you're in with a pretty good chance. Unless you're Genghis Khan, Hitler, or Hugh Hefner, then you might be in trouble. But if you're nice. And if we're honest, most of us like to think we do our best. And maybe in our, our most honest moments, twist your arm up behind your back honest, you realize you haven't really done your best. But maybe at least you're better than average. You know most Americans, 65% of Americans think they're of above-average intelligence. If you're still thinking about that, you're not, but it's still, you know. <laughs> but maybe, maybe you think, you know, if the man upstairs is grading on the curve, I mean with a fighting chance, I mean, look at the row beside you. I mean, there's some pretty bad people along there. I mean, they're maybe getting a D, I don't know, or a C minus on the curve, but, you know, you're, I, I'm in with a you know, pretty good solid B minus or B even, right, on a good day. I'm not as bad as them. 
I mean, surely God wouldn't send us all to hell, would He? Nice people. And this morning, in our text, we meet the Apostle Paul and his own testimony of his remarkable attainments in the flesh in the great business of serving God. So, listen with me as we read together the Word of God. Philippians 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That was last week's sermon. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, dung, refuge, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, or from God, that depends on faith. In these words, Paul tells us of a time when he answered the question, how good is good enough? by looking to himself, by looking to his own position on the bell curve of human decency and piety and godliness and morality, by looking to his own pedigree as one of the best Jews who ever lived, and by leaning on his own performance, his remarkable performance as one of the most pious, passionate, and dare I say it, perfect practitioners of the Jewish religion. Even now, Paul says, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Anyone, even now. If anyone could do enough to flesh his way to heaven, I am that man, Paul says. Got to understand that to the eyes of a first-century Jew, Paul just wasn't a good man He wasn't even just one of the best men. Paul was one of the best of the best. If flashing your way to heaven was an Olympic sport, Paul would be in with a jolly good chance of winning the gold medal. He was a living embodiment of that resolution by Jonathan Edwards, resolved that if in any generation only one man were to live well enough and consistently enough that he would make it to heaven to be that man. And Paul says, I was that man. I am that man. Think, Paul says, of my position. Verse 4, though I myself have. Notice Paul doesn't say, I used to have. Paul says, I myself have, right now, 
reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul here is speaking to the church. He's not speaking to some self-righteous synagogue. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to you and to me. He's saying to us, no matter how diligent you think you are, trust me, I am more diligent. No matter how consistent you think you are, Paul says, trust me, I am more consistent. No matter how disciplined you think you are, Paul says, trust me, I am more disciplined. Now, in a moment, you'll say, all this gain is worthless. In a moment. But for now, Paul is saying, I am better at doing religion than any of you. Let me give you an illustration from the realm of physical fitness. Everyone in this room is somewhere um, on the realm of human fitness. At one end, there are those of you who are very fit, like Steve Shropshire and Eric Bolton probably the fittest man in this room. I know I try to keep up with with Eric in the gym with no success every week, but he's fit. At the other end, there are those of you who are not very fit. But none of you are David Goggins. David Goggins is, is, by any measure, an elite athlete, a former Navy SEAL, He has mastered the ability of pushing his body beyond the limits of human human endurance. He holds the world record for pull-ups, 4,030. It took him 17 hours. You can't sit down, you can't rest, you've got to stand beneath the pull-up bar, and you, obviously you didn't hold on to the bar for 17 hours, but you can, you can drop down, you've got to stand under the bar for 17 hours. He did 4,030 pull-ups. He's an extreme marathon runner. He ran 205 miles without stopping, and it took him 39 hours. 39 hours. That's like eight marathons practically. What's even more amazing is he did that with practically bone-on-bone arthritis in his knees. Every step was agony, and he kept putting one step after the other for 39 hours. Even more amazing, when he was 24 years of age, David Goggins was anything but fit. He was morbidly obese, 297 pounds, addicted to fast food. He sprayed for cockroaches and rats for a living, and it wasn't just a pest control. He went to the most infested places, earned $1,000 a month, couldn't run the length of himself, had sickle cell anemia, and was scared of water. It's a long story, no time for it now, but in a moment one day watching the Rocky movie, it all turned around. It took him three goes to get through buds. He got through buds, scared of water, terrified of water. When you're hypoxic with sickle cell disease, you go into sickle cell anemia, and it's not good to be holding your breath underwater. He did it. And he's now 
has served with distinction at the highest levels of our nation's special forces. Whenever the orthopedic surgeon operated on his knees, what was left of his cartilage was so hard it broke the scalpel, cutting through it. Paul says, I was the spiritual equivalent of David Goggins, except I wasn't 300 pounds. I've been that way since the day and hour I was born. On the bell curve of human decency, Paul says, I'm at the furthest end of morality. And Paul justifies that position by pointing you to his pedigree and his performance. His pedigree. He said, look, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, these, these next uh, four um, credentials go from lesser to greater. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his pedigree, right? Circumcised the eighth day. In other words, Paul says, I got the perfect start in life. I, wasn't no, I was no pagan convert. I wasn't like Ishmael circumcised when he was 13. I was circumcised at just the right time and just the right way at just the right, by just the right person. With the best start in life, born a covenant child. Then he says, I was of the people of Israel. That's a technical phrase. And Paul here is saying that um, I, was not a, I was not a pagan convert. Uh, I, I was of the people of Israel from the very earliest moment of my existence. That's what that phrase means. All of the blessings Paul enumerates of Romans 9 of the Jews, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. All of those blessings belong to Paul from the moment he was conceived. Furthermore, he says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. What's that mean? Well, you remember, most of the Jews could not trace their tribal lineage. The northern ten tribes were wiped off the face of the earth in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians carted them off to modern-day Iran, what later became Babylon. They never returned, and their tribal lineage was lost in the sands of the ancient Near East. Only two and a half tribes remained. You had Judah, you had Levi, and Benjamin in the south. And of those three tribes, actually, Benjamin had amazing um, primacy. Not primacy. It, it, it was very prodigious to be a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Well, Benjamin, you remember, was the daughter of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. He was the only one of the boys, the 12 boys, born in the land of promise, given birth just outside Bethlehem where Rachel died. And also, the city limits, or in, in the, the land lot of Benjamin, the city of Jerusalem fell, so that's a pretty good zip code to be in, especially if you're walking every year to the feasts, you're close at hand, Right? like being born today in Martha's Vineyard. It's a pretty good place to be. And Paul says, I was also a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is another technical phrase. Um, Paul here is saying, um, the, the phrase literally means, I was, not, I was not born as part of the, the diaspora. I was raised in Israel 
And Hebrew and Aramaic were my mother tongue. I could speak Greek fluently, of course, but I thought in Hebrew. And you'll see that kind of thinking in Acts 22, is it, whenever Paul is calming down the riot, and he speaks in Hebrew, you remember. In Jerusalem, he's standing there, and he, he speaks in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, and they quieten down. He says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, yes, but in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as of all of you are this day. So, Paul went to religious boarding school, as it were, in Jerusalem, and studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the, 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 the professor of professors, the, the best teacher in Paul's day. That's Paul's pedigree. Now, I was fortunate enough to, be, to grow up in Coltraw, Northern Ireland, BT 18 OAE is our postal code, and it's probably the most, it is the most um, affluent zip code in Northern Ireland, the most mansions per, per square mile or square acre there. And when I was dating Catherine, she used to always joke with me, my mother was very proper, and she'd always joke with me that my mother didn't think she was of good enough stock to marry me. I don't think that was true, of course, but it was a kind of a joke Catherine and I had. And um, the first time Catherine came to dinner, mum gave her um, salmon steak on the bone, which is a test. Can you use a fish knife properly and separate the fish from the bones? Not those salmon fillets you get here, but on the bone, cut, you know, um, across, across the fish. You've got the spine and the, and the ribs, and it's a nightmare getting the… the, the, the and if you, if you get a, a fish bone in your mouth, can you get the fish bone out without, you know, digging in your mouth with your hand? It's a test, right? And so, Catherine always thought that, you know, mum was testing her, didn't think she was good enough stock. But mum couldn't have been more wrong. Catherine just got a copy of her, her family tree that goes back a long way. It goes back all the way to Alfred the Great. And beyond Alfred the Great, for crying out loud, her pedigree goes back to Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor in the 8th century. Like, who's, who is related to Charlemagne? My wife is. It's made the mornings really awkward. I've got to give her a coffee in the morning and bow and call her Your Majesty. Uh, do you know, but just the family pedigree is incredible. Well, Paul says, my family pedigree goes back a long way to a long list of distinguished people. My, my pedigree is awesome. And yet he says, I count everything. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, worse than nothing, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ. In our egalitarian age, that kind of thinking doesn't get you very many brownie points. We don't really go in for pedigrees, right? Though America's trying to find an aristocratic class, I suppose, but we don't really go in for pedigree so much, right? But we, we do have a way of establishing our pedigree. You know, what race are you from? How wealthy are you? And everybody's money is different, of course, because the doctor's money, the lawyer's money, the engineer's money, that's cleaner than the drug dealer's money. So, where do you get your money? Are you new money or old money? 
If you go to Martha's vineyard, trust me, the old money can tell new money a mile off. How you tie your tie and everything else. How you fold your cravat. How you walk, where you put your arms when you walk. It's all measured. What kind of house do you live in? How popular are you among, are you among your friend group? If you're young, how many likes do you get on social media? Are you an influencer? Probably not. But if you are, great pedigree. How beautiful are you? Are you in good shape? Do you have a bod to die for? Those are all ways of establishing your pedigree in our day and age. What kind of car do you drive? If you're a teenager, does your car make as much noise as Reese Grimace's does when he drives out of the parking lot on Sunday mornings? <laughs> Probably not. Rumor has it the Chinese spy balloon flying over Greensboro was actually looking to see if we were testing some supersonic aircraft uh, in Greensboro. We have different ways, right, of establishing our pedigree in our day and land. We all have it. Those little phrases you put in um, after your name when you introduce yourself who you are, what you do for a living. Paul says, what things were gained to me, these I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's pedigree. And then his performance, Paul says, I used to trust my performance. As to the law, a Pharisee, he's going from lesser to greater. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. His performance. As to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees, we often think of Pharisees as kind of hairy guys, hair out of the nose, you know, out of the ears, out of the nose. You're kind of like, you know, ugly, self-righteous. And they were self-righteous, but you'd never have thought that. They were like the Presbyterians of our day, the Reformed Presbyterians. No exceptions to the law. No exceptions to doctrinal orthodoxy. They were, everything was, every I dotted, every T crossed. I remember one time, one of my journeys back and forth across the Atlantic when I was at seminary, I sat a few rows behind a modern-day Pharisee, a Jew, had the yarmulke, even had the prayer shawl with the blue or the gray um, fringe and the tassels, the whole nine yards, for nine hours on the plane. Nine hours. He spent the whole time studying his Hebrew Old Testament, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the commentaries, all on his desk in front of him. He spent nine hours studying those, apart from 15 minutes eating his lunch, kosher lunch, and one or two times going to the restroom. The rest of the time, he didn't watch the movies, he didn't watch, listen to the music. He was in the Word of God. I don't do that. Do you do that? That's like Paul. Never missed a quiet time. Never missed family worship. Never missed a Lord's Day. Never forgot where he was in the hymn. Like I did earlier this morning. Or the Lord's Prayer, like last week. You start praying the wrong words at the end. And you get totally lost. I was terrified this week to make, make a mess again. Um, we got through it in God's mercy. But um, Paul, didn't do, Paul was always focused, never distracted. The Pharisees 
competed with one another in strictness. They atomized God's law, 613 rules, 214 positive commands, 365 prohibitions, and 1,521 footnotes explaining it. To avoid breaking the third commandment, they didn't even take God's name at all on their lips. To avoid breaking the seventh commandment, the Pharisees kept their heads down for fear that they would look with lust upon another woman. They looked at the ground. The most righteous of the Pharisees were called bleeding Pharisees because they kept on walking into lampposts and stuff along the way. Seriously. To avoid defiling the Sabbath, they, they defined it in minuscule detail, like in Jeremiah 17, God forbids carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. Well, that, of course, begs the question, what's the burden? Saul had an answer. The burden is a foot equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a custom house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and so on endlessly. The list went on and on. Draw a chair across the floor in an earthen house, an earthen floor house, and you make a divot, and you're guilty of farming. Everything was defined. Saul would have tithed everything. If someone gave him a bag of mint or cumin as a present, he gave 10% to God. Don't know how you put that in the offering plate, but he did it. That's the equivalent, boys and girls, at Christmas time when mummy and daddy give you presents, or Santa right? Presents come in at Christmas time, birthday time, and you take, you, you, you go to Amazon, you figure out what is the um, rough monetary value of those presents, you multiply it by 0.1 to get 10%, and you give that to God as a tithe. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what Paul did. Everything was tithed. No exceptions. And that wasn't just a code for Paul. He put his sword where his mouth was. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, the word zeal in Greek and in Hebrew is a very important word. It's linked to a, a hero of the Old Testament, Phineas. Remember, he stopped the plague whenever um, Balaam and Balak brought in the Midianite woman to, to corrupt the, the men of Israel. And there was great sexual debauchery. And Phineas, remember, gets his spear. And he finds a um, a, a well-to-do young man making love to a, a Midianite woman, and he takes the spear and he runs both of them through all the way, through both. And forevermore he was known for his zeal. And so, for example, in Psalm 106, In verse 30, this is the key verse. Let's read verse 28. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, the Lord of the opening. And you know which opening he's speaking of. The opening of sex, anatomically. And eight sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation. 
this man who killed the wicked. And Paul here, he doesn't want you to see, as to zeal the persecutor, he doesn't want you to see him persecuting the church so much. As that, that's obviously a bad thing, right? He, he was, but in his mind, he was fighting for God. He was fighting for orthodoxy and sound doctrine. He was the kind of man, one of my friends in Presbytery, a really godly pastor, he spends every week, he, he preaches twice on Sunday, and he preaches midweek, and he spends about as much time as it would take to do a seminary term paper every week studying up um, false religions, sects, doctrinal errors. And he basically is writing a term paper-level treatise every week online in his blogs, on Facebook, arguing with atheists, er, people in error in the PCA and the Side B movement, all kinds of errors every single week he's, he's, he's there. And that's amazing. It's a good thing. Paul was like that. He's fighting in his mind for truth and orthodoxy. Even though, as is so often the case in all of our fights for orthodoxy, we let love fall to the wayside. And then the climax. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless, Paul says. Now, notice Paul isn't saying, I thought I was blameless. He's saying, I was blameless. If anyone thinks he has reason to glory in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. Paul was the kind of man who was unusually consistent, never lost his temper, never missed quiet time, never cursed, never swore, never looked with lust upon a woman, never sped, Never got a parking ticket. He was that. You think no one's that disciplined? That's only because you compare yourself to yourself. Like if, if, if you'd never seen the magazines, you'd never you'd never believe looking at your tummy that someone's got six pack abs. You never would. You'd think it's impossible. I've got a keg. I haven't got a six pack. And then you see on the picture of the Calvin Klein stores, you walk past the man with the body of the Adonis standing there with his pecs and his bicep the size of a small South American country, and his ribbed abdomen, you think, it's not possible. How does he do that? Quite simply, by not doing all the things you do. <laughs> Whenever somebody offers him a piece of cake, he doesn't go, oh, just one. He goes, no, get thee behind me, Satan. And Paul was like that spiritually. He really was consistent. As to the law, Paul says, I was blameless in the eyes of man, he's saying, I think is the, is the idea, but he was blameless. You say, Paul, nobody's perfect. And Paul said, I know I'm not perfect. I am a sinner, but I had the sacrificial system. God provided the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the lambs, the goats. And Paul says, I would bring a lamb. When I was conscious of sin, I'd bring the lamb. Now, lambs are expensive. I don't know how much a lamb costs. Like, I don't know, maybe as much as half an egg, I don't know, maybe $400. But, you know, he'd bring a lamb and sacrifice it when he was conscious of sin. And, he, and Paul knew that was the way he was forgiven his sins. Here's the, here's, the, here's the trouble, though, right? God gave Paul that sacrifice to offer, in a sense, but Paul was proud he offered it. It was like a, a woman singing 
in the choir, you know, solo, just as I am without one plea and proud of her voice. Paul was proud. He's offering a sacrifice. I'm much, Jews don't care about their sin, but I care about my sin. I'm following the law here. And he also knew enough about, his, about sin nature in the Psalms, like when the psalmist says, incline my heart toward your law and away from dishonest, greedy gain, right, in Psalm 119. And Paul would say, I've got a greedy heart, but God's given me prayers to pray. But Paul found himself being just a little bit proud. He was praying that prayer. Like, you ever find yourself doing something really humble? You, you serve somebody, and then pride rises in your heart. You think, oh, no, 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 down, down, down. And then you push pride down, and you think, oh, I'm really glad I had the, I had the humility to push that pride down. <laughs> and you think, oh, no. And then you repent of that, and you push the pride down again. And before you know it, it's like when you sit in the hairdressers or the, or the barber and there's a, a mirror in front of you and a mirror on the wall behind you and your reflection goes on forever. You get to a place where you're kind of proud of the fact that you were proud of the fact that you repented of the fact that you were proud of the fact that you were humble and then proud of the fact that you saw that and proud of the fact you saw that. And it just goes on forever and ever 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 and ever. And you're just a little bit proud that you're proud of all those repentances. Of being proud of your pride of your humility. That's Paul. But at the end of the day, Paul says to you and me, How do I know I'm good enough? Because of my position. I'm better than practically everybody else. My pedigree is spotless. My performance is frankly incredible. And Paul would acknowledge that these were things God did in him and to him. Paul would have been a good enough theologian to know that in the Old Testament. God was the one circumcising his heart. But in his mind, technically what we would say in, in, in our theology today was that Paul took justification and made it hang, at least in part, if not in a lot, on his sanctification. That because God was making him a better person in his position, pedigree, and performance, that all added together gave him hope, and more than hope, of a good standing before God. And then came that devastating moment on the Damascus Road when Paul came to see, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, if you think of the ladder of human merit reaching to heaven, and you've got the ground floor, Paul says, all that I did, my position, my pedigree, my performance, didn't get me halfway up the ladder, almost to good enough. 
It didn't even get me to the first rung on the ladder. It didn't even leave me standing at ground level. It actually pushed me so far beneath ground level. I came bursting out the earth on the far side and flew off into outer space. All these things are worse than… They're, they're lost, Paul says. They give me nothing. They leave me actually bankrupt. You think of assets and liabilities, boys and girls. What's an asset and liability? An asset is something you own that puts money in your pocket, like a business or a rental property that actually pays you money every month. And a liability is something that takes money out of your pocket, like a new car. The moment you drive it off the, the showroom, it loses, I don't know, 20% in value, and it's downhill all the way. You've got to put in gas, you've got to put, get it repaired, put new tires on it, get oil changes every 6,000 miles, whatever. It's costing you money every mile you drive. And if you owe money on it in a car loan, it's even worse. It's a liability, right? And Paul says, all of my righteousness isn't just in an, a small credit, but not enough. It's actually a liability. It's actually worse than nothing because it stands between me and trusting Christ alone for my salvation and for my justification. And you know, you and I, we constantly find things to trust in instead of our justification, instead of Christ. Things that make us feel a little bit better about ourselves things that puff, up, puff, puff, puff us up and plump us up in our own eyes and before other people. When Paul's writing to the Galatian church, he's writing against the circumcision party who demands circumcision. They're very proud of the mark they had in the flesh that made them something Jewish. But then, on the other side of the church, there's the uncircumcision party who are equally proud of the fact we're resisting those Judaizers and their and their. Um, heterodox addition to the gospel, circumcision, uncircumcision. And for both of them, circumcision and uncircumcision were actually destroying them. And Paul says in to the Galatian church, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Think of the things that make you feel better before God. Having your daily quiet time every day. Getting through your yearly Bible readings perfectly on time counts for nothing for your justification. Being so far behind in your Bible reading that you catch yourself up the next year, January the 20th, midway through Genesis. What a waster. Can't even read your Bible every day. Counts for nothing but only faith working through love. Having family worship every day, which is an important thing to do. We should do it. Having it every day, never missing. Never having family worship. When it comes to justification, matters nothing but only faith working through love. Homeschooling your children. And if you're honest, some of you are just a little bit proud you homeschool your children. Those poor urchins in public school. Ooh. And your children are just pristine and perfect and they're so well-dressed and so modest. And you feel a little bit better. You kind of puff yourself up. Counts for nothing but faith working through love. Others of you, 
No, we're not so self-righteous to be that elite homeschoolers. We send our kids to public school. We want them to be a witness and so forth and so on. And, 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 and we'll be part of the culture and, and show that we, we don't mind having our children mixing with rich and poor, black and white, and so forth and so on. And it's all just, it's all part of our, and you're so self-righteous that you're, we do the public, ed, neither homeschooling nor public education matter anything when it comes to justification, but faith working through love. Sexual purity. Being so pure sexually, you never kissed a man, never even kissed your husband till the day you married him. You're so proud of it. I'm so proud of that, you might think to yourself. Barely even kiss him now, but I didn't kiss him until that day. Or maybe you lost your virginity at 11 or 12 years of age, groping about in the back of an old car behind a pub somewhere, and you just are just haunted by it, either keeping yourself pure sexually. Or being ungodly, kind for anything. And it comes through justification, but faith working through Christ. Having a huge family, you know, six, seven, eight, nine kids, huge family, all born within marriage. Are children born outside marriage? Or children even butchered in the womb? Abortions? Or never have I had an abortion? Count for nothing when it comes to justification. But faith alone in Christ alone. Groping after the God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And you need to hear that. And I need to hear that. We're so easily proud of ourselves. Who we are, what we've done. And when we think like that, it pulls our focus off of Christ and pulls it down upon ourselves. That's why you're so easily undone. Ladies, maybe you've got a, a really tidy house or an untidy house. Maybe you've got an untidy house. Maybe it's a total mess. Or maybe... The downstairs is okay, but upstairs, open a few, few rooms, and it's a complete pigsty, boxes and mess, and you'd be horrified. If, if one of your friends from church came and opened the door upstairs into the junk room, oh, the shame. And some of you are thinking, I can't imagine having a junk room. That's just awful. I haven't even got a junk drawer. <laughs> tidy house, untidy house. Fit body, flabby body. Count for nothing. But why are, we so, why are we so embarrassed when people see us, criticize us, condemn us? Why do we jump to being so defensive when our wives point out our failings, men? The reason is because we forget our justification. If God has no words of condemnation for us, what should it matter if men condemn us or men think less of us? If God's forgiven us a trillion dollars debt and made you as righteous as Christ is righteous, what's it matter 
If your wife or your boss or your sister or your mother criticize you, point out obvious faults or flaws, or even worse, condemn you falsely, some of you are so hard on yourselves and and you've got so much guilt. When somebody accuses you falsely or or unfairly, you can't cope with it. It's overwhelming because you've got so much guilt pressing you down. How dare they add one more thing that's unjust to the list? And you get angry. That only ever happens when you've forgotten that you're justified by a righteousness that's not in you, that's not done to you or through you, but our righteousness for you in the heavens, where you can't get your grubby fingers upon it to make it dirty, and you can't get your good works to make it better. It's perfect in Christ, and it's a billion miles away above you. All of His perfect thoughts and words and deeds, His life, His death, His resurrection are yours, Christian. You're more righteous than Gabriel is and Michael is. The best they can bring to the table is the paltry righteousness of the best of the best angels in heaven. But it's a finite righteousness. You and I in Christ have been, have been justified by the very righteousness of God Himself in Christ. And that's all you need to recommend you to God and everything else, anything else you add to that is worse than nothing because it keeps you back from the everything that's yours in Christ. We'll come back to this next week. But don't forget the gospel, Christian. Don't trust your pedigree. Don't trust your position on the bell curve. Don't trust your performance. Not worthy. Trust only in Jesus. Christ alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Nothing else matters. Nothing else counts when it comes to being good enough for God. There is none other good enough to pay the price of sin. Christ alone could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Let's pray together. O God, our Father, come, we pray, and speak to us, O Lord. Assure the men and women of this church, the bad men and women of this church, for there are no good men and women in this church. The bad pastors of this church, the bad elders of this church, the bad deacons of this church, assure us, O God, of the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ. And grant us a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. In whose name we pray. Amen.